0: Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drinks, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit MOFAD.org.
1: Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free, To bring you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org to become a member now. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about the intersection of food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. My guest today is Vani Williams. She's a first-generation Ghanaian-American and the co-founder of The Black Forks, a website dedicated to exploring all food and culture through the black lens in a community where contributors of color share their experiences connected to food. Welcome to the show, Vani. Thank you.
2: How are you? I'm doing great. It's a nice day. It is a nice day. Cool.
1: Um, So we met a few months ago Mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of got right to it. I was so interested in hearing about um, the Black Forks, which is your organization that you started, because you let me know kind of right off the bat that from your perspective, having had some experience in food media And, you know, someone who likes food and likes going to dine out and trying new restaurants, you were sort of aware and sensitive to the fact that people of color didn't always feel like um, comfortable in in fine dining spaces. And you felt like there was an opportunity to say, like, hey, maybe if we all go together, you know, we'll, we'll we're at least in this together and we don't have to feel excluded or like a minority in this
2: situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on the head. Um, I was just paraphrasing what you told me. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good paraphrase. I mean, yeah, it goes into the reason why I created the Black Forks. I worked in food PR. I didn't see anyone who looked like me. I didn't see any of my experiences reflected anywhere. And so I feel like this is the standard in our culture. The white experience is seen as a default. It's seen as the standard when it comes to beauty, when it comes to the news, the people that are often held as a Pinnacle of Beauty often white. The people who are reporting the news and telling us what's going on in the world are often white. And this trickles down to food and culture. When I worked in food PR, you know, it was overwhelmingly white, white. The writers, the editors, everything that I read, and I didn't see myself reflected in there. And I said, well, what's the problem? Because... Food is universal. Everyone eats food. Everyone enjoys food. So why aren't more perspectives being told within the larger space? Why aren't they, in your opinion? Um, that's a good question. I feel that people people fear who they don't know and what mm-hmm. they don't know. I think that if someone has a voice of dissent, it's often stifled. And I feel that people are often not open-minded enough to listen to others' opinions, especially when it's on such a Touchy topics such as race or class or socioeconomic status. And I feel like because those three things kind of hint at our very core of our identities, at least in America, we are categorized by our race, by our class, by socioeconomic status. Those things are very touching. People often kind of want to shy away from that. So I feel like instead of people opening up their hearts and minds to have that conversation, it's just easier to be defensive and shut down. Yeah. Um, It's
1: still... It still made me think, though, because coming from my privileged white perspective, it was still something I'd actually never thought about, like what it felt like as a minority person to go to a fine dining restaurant and just feel like... "Mm." it's just food we all eat, but I don't necessarily feel like I belong here. Like that was something that really struck me. And it struck me because it's something that I had never thought of before. And I was like, why have, why have I never thought of this before? Yeah. So I appreciated that you, you're you addressing that issue. Um, do you feel like
2: you're, you're able to make change? Like how how is the Black Force affecting change at this point? I feel that not with just myself, with other writers of color, We are a lot more bolder in this space And saying like hey we're here You're not going to silence our opinions No matter how dissenting you think they are Like we're just going to speak our mind Regardless of all the hateful comments That we're going to get And regardless of all the not so great things That people are going to say about us I feel with the Black Forks We are that safe space of people of color where they can come and be unapologetically themselves and they can have their opinions validated without reprisal or repercussion. So that's why I feel like we kind of fit in that space. But we have plenty of really great writers out there who are branching out and saying, hey, I'm going to write for the New York Times and I'm going to say my opinion. If you don't like it, well, fuck it. You know, it is what it is. So I feel like we definitely want to branch out into that space too as well. But I definitely want to kind of create a space of our own where we don't really have that out in the world, you know? Like, you mean something separate from mainstream food media? I think... Yes and no. So it's twofold. So yeah, something separate from mainstream media, but also saying that we are a part of mainstream media as well. And we're going to continue to bust down whatever doors and whatever mm-hmm. whatever walls that are in front of us to say like, okay, mainstream media is not just white media. It's also about the black experience. It's mm-hmm. also about the Latino experience. It's also about the Asian experience. While still having that space where people of color can come and feel like they see us, they can see themselves reflected in us reflected in the articles that we write reflected in the language that we use as well
1: yeah i mean it's such an interesting thing like to your point what you said everybody eats Mm -hmm. like it's it's i I don't like it's surprising to me that um like we still see uh like even when you go to restaurants you know like we still see separation like food is so universal and yet that's like not reflected in like the communities that exist within restaurants so
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I'd love to touch a little bit on your background before we continue this conversation and kind of like take a step back. Um, tell us a little bit about
2: your upbringing in Ghana, like when you lived there and what that was like. Absolutely. So like you mentioned, I'm first generation Ghanaian American. Mm-hmm. My father immigrated here in the 70s, I actually lived in Canada for 10 years before coming to the U.S. And he met my mom in the 80s and they both came here. So... Growing up as a child, I always knew I was Ghanaian. I knew Ghana was a country in Africa. I didn't know, know exactly where, but I knew that I wasn't American, according to my parents. So I always describe my, my upbringing before I went to Ghana to live there as little Ghana, because it was a little microcosm of the home country where we kind of practiced all our traditions and our customs and ate tr- traditional Ghanaian food. When I was seven years old, I moved to Ghana for about three years. So I lived there until I was 10. And it was definitely a big culture shock, definitely a huge adjustment from everything to what we call African time, where people just kind of take their time <laughs> to live life. Or as opposed to America, everything's always very rushed to even the concept of, of dining and eating out. I remember in my three years living there, you know, we ate out maybe once, and it wasn't because my grandparents couldn't afford it. My grandparents came from, from affluence. It was just food was seen as a community thing. The you whole, ate out one time in three years. Yeah, because in Ghana, it, it's changed a little bit now. But um, it's just not a thing that you do. Mm-hmm. You may pick up something on your way from school or you're on your way back from work. But in terms of dining, it was very familial. So you'll have everybody cooking. Everybody will eat from the same pot it was It was definitely more of an intimate experience than something you would do going out and spending money for mm-hmm. uh let's see, yeah, life was just very, very different. I remember telling you even when I came back here, the way people spoke, I had to get adjusted to that mm-hmm. because in Ghana, there's something called the Queen's English, so you learn English. Like how they speak it in the UK, not necessarily in America. So things like biscuit, I had to learn that they were called cookies now. And even something so simple has when people spoke. You know, in Ghana when you speak, you speak declaratively. If you ask something to say, you say it has is. When I came back here, I had to get used to people kind of speaking and having the uptick in the voice after they spoke. So in my head I'm like, are you asking me a question or are you (laughs) saying something to me? And I had to get used to that. So it was really, really interesting living in a country where everyone looked like you. You never thought about race to coming back to America. And the first thing you know is that you don't look like everybody else and everybody else lets you feel that as well. So I would say that was definitely a very interesting experience to have, especially as a young kid. This living in the two cultures and kind of bouncing back. Yeah, I mean, how did
1: that affect your identity? Like, first, before you went to Africa, like having the understanding that you were born into this immigrant family and you weren't entirely American, Mm -hmm. um, and then going there and then coming back and feeling, you know, more connected to your heritage. Did you feel
2: displaced, like, at any part, or did you kind of feel between two worlds? I think I did definitely when I came back from Ghana because in a lot of ways, I am American. I've lived here for a really long time. I haven't been back in quite some time, even though I really identify with the culture. So for me, as a Ghanaian-American, as somebody who has immigrated from Ghana recently, there is a cultural difference. There is mm-hmm. a cultural divide. So I've always felt like I've lived in, in between two worlds where to Ghanaians, you're not quite super Ghanaian, but to Americans, you're not really American either. So you're kind of living your own bubble of in between us. But the good thing about getting older is that you find a lot of people who are in that same position as you as well, is that they don't necessarily belong in either world, so you just create your own. That's a really good point. How do you, how have you gone about creating your own? I, for me personally, my personal journey is just being content in my identity and not necessarily listening to people when they say, "Oh, you're not Ghanaian enough," or "Or oh, you're not American enough," is defining who I am for myself. I am who I am. I know where I come from. I speak and understand my language. I cook my traditional foods at home. Therefore, I am Ghanaian. But I don't ignore the American side of me as well. So, I think for me is listening, not well, actually, not listening to people and what they have to say about me, and defining my own identity for myself. I mean, is that something that happens a lot, too? Like, people
1: criticize you for not either being American or Ghanaian enough?
2: Um, Not so much anymore, because honestly, I just, I don't care. I have family members that will say, oh, you need to go back. Like, you're losing your Ghanaianness. Yeah, but does it, like, that kind of criticism? Or I don't know if it's, like...
1: Joking or not, like does that come from your family or does that come more from like an outside?
2: Um, not necessarily my family. Maybe a little bit of like extended family and family, family friends, and maybe friends that I have that are Ghanaian, but immigrated here a few years ago. Maybe when we were in high school and we were in college, that have a completely different Amer- um, experience of America because they weren't born here or because they didn't come here at a very young age. So yeah, people do tease and they kind of like joke, but not really joke about it. But at the end of the day. I think I've dealt with it for so long, it just kind of just rolls off with me at this point.
1: Yeah. What was food like? I mean, other than the fact that you always ate at home, it sounds like. Like, what were some other, um, like, what's what's typical Ghanaian food, I
2: guess? Wow, typical Ghanaian food is delicious. I mean, no <laughs> bias here. But um, typical Ghanaian food always starts off with a base, a uh, really great friggin' base of tomatoes, onions, scotch bonnet peppers, garlic, and ginger. And that's pretty much the basis of almost every Ghanaian dish. Anything Breakfast, fr- lunch, and dinner? Yeah. Um, so breakfast is interesting because breakfast sometimes is savory. I feel like in America, breakfast a lot of times is sweet. but in, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Ghanaian, it kind of tailors more a little bit on the savory side. But yes, everything starts off with that tomato base. So you make everything from... Stews with goat meat and just various kinds of meat to peanut soup, where you use that base and you add peanut butter and you add meat and you add the stock and you cook it down for a few hours and just kind of wait till it gets nice and thick. To palm nut soup, where you take literally, I remember this when I was a kid, where we had a huge palm tree and one of my uncles would come climb on the palm tree, take the machete, cut off the palm, and we'll roast palm nuts and from there you get the red palm nut paste, you get the palm oil and we use that a lot in Ghanaian cuisine too so I would describe Ghanaian cuisine as definitely very flavored very nuanced, very complex surprisingly healthy people tend to think that ethnic cuisine is not really healthy or full of fat or full of calories but with Ghanaian food it's really not as super nutritious, just using the food from the earth, Ghana you know, Ghana's a very lush tropical country so there's Tons of like Produce and vegetables Around for people to use So
1: What language Did you speak When you lived there?
2: So interestingly I spoke two languages When I was there So My parents On my mother's side They're from a tribe Called Fanti But my grandmother Grew up with people from the Ashanti tribe. So the Ashanti speak tree and the Fanti speak Fanti. So I actually ended up learning both languages.
1: You learned two languages yeah. while you were there. Yeah. In three years, you said? Yes. That's
2: a lot. Yeah. Learn. Yeah. It is a lot to learn. Uh, my grandmother definitely is still Ghanaian pride in me. She was like, you're a Ghanaian. I want you to learn the language. Mm-hmm. So she kind of did like a crash, a crash course in languages where I wasn't spoken to English for a very long time. I only spoke English in school. Hmm. So as soon as I came home, everybody spoke to me in tree and And if I didn't understand, it sucked for me.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's one thing to learn a new language, but you were trying to
2: orient yourself to two different languages at the exact same time. Yeah. Um, So the languages are kind of similar. I tell people it's kind of like learning Portuguese and Spanish where they're Hmm. different enough where you can tell the difference. But there are some words that people share. So to me, it wasn't it wasn't as difficult. For me, it's difficult now because outside of my family, nobody in my circle of friends speak Fonti, so sometimes I mix up my words. Mm-hmm. People are like, what are you talking about? And I'm just like, oh, wait, wrong language. <laughs> but in, in Ghana, it's not necessarily that hard because there are plenty of people that speak two, three, four, five languages oh. all really fluently. So so when you came back to the United States,
1: like you were still pretty young. Yeah. And was it difficult? I mean, other than you know, you said you had to kind of like reacclimate yourself to certain, um, you know, ways people speak and like some some language choices. But just like in terms of kind of reconciling yourself like and assimilating yourself like as a young person, because I know it's like there's so much pressure when you're young to like to to be cool and, yeah. and like you kind of just want to fit in when you're young. Mm-hmm. Like individual individuality is like not so much a thing at yeah. that point.
2: Did you feel feel very displaced like as a young person trying to like acclimate yourself? Absolutely. And I'm the kind of person that I've always stood out whether I liked it or not. <laughs> For all the listeners out there, I'm very tall. I'm 5'11". You know, I have very distinct features. So, I felt like when I came back, I tried to acclimate myself to the culture and to the people. And it wasn't working. Like, I sucked at it. (laughs) When I tried to speak with an American accent, I sounded like an African trying to speak with an American accent. And so I, and it was painful for me to kind of adjust to that and learn that, hey, no one will ever see you as them. You will always kind of be an other in some form or fashion. And um, to answer your question, yes, it was difficult because I think as a young kid, you don't want to learn that you don't belong. Mm -hmm. I think it's a human, it's human nature to want to belong to something. And so when you're really young and you don't have that strong sense of, of, of identity, it's, it could kind of rattle your world a little bit. And I think it did for me for, for a few years, for quite some time.
1: Yeah. Um, just speaking now in terms of how things are like in the world and there's been so much anti-immigrant sentiment and like you don't necessarily have you know, the, the experience of having come to America for the first time from Mm -hmm. a different country, but just to feel like all of a sudden, you know, the tides have kind of shifted and there, there is a lot of hostility in general towards people who aren't like patriotic and, you know, of a certain way and, and born and bred in the United States. Like, how does that feel having such, um, just like a, like a colorful background?
2: Um, It's definitely interesting, especially now in Trump's Mm -hmm. America, you see a lot of the anti-immigration policies. Uh, What always confuses me about when people are against immigration is that immigrants have built America. Literally, America is a land of immigrants. So when people say things like go back to your country or learn how to speak English. Well, when Christopher Columbus came here and decided to take over America because he thought it was a new land, like people here did not speak English. They spoke the languages that various Native Americans spoke when they were here. So I, it infuriates me, and I try, I try for it not to get to me very much because, especially as I get older, I understand that not everyone thinks like you. And especially with us being in New York and being this multicultural bubble. We tend to be very liberal with our thoughts and we tend to find our tribe of liberal people who understand that. But when you travel to plenty of other states outside of New York, we do not the same sentiment is not there. So for me, I guess for my own personal self-care, I try not to get too enraged about it because I know that there, there are a lot more people who think that way, whether they vocalize it or not.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the same thing is true a little bit when you're talking about food and race. And that's been like a really taboo subject. Like, I think even in New York and like we're just starting to talk about like there's there's a lot of conversations that are happening around like immigration and everything um, because of what's going on in the world. But I think that there's less that have to do with food and race. And you and I were just talking about this article that appeared in Civil Ra- Civil Eats mm-hmm. that just brought up the top, like just brought up the fact that food and race is like not a topic that's covered very much. Um, and so it was this great article in Civil Eats, and it spoke to several different writers of color. And I just wanted to read this one quick passage uh, that Bonnie Swee, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. So she wrote an article in the New York times talking about like the kind of casual racism of the Asian salad that still exists on so many menus. Like you see, not so much in like, yeah. And she just got all of this like horrible backlash thrown at her. And so speaking to, um, Speaking to that, that point, like that she got so much, so many people were outraged by this, she says, I received a lot of notes that relied on flawed logic, a setup of false equivalencies that just because someone writes a piece about X, she doesn't care about Y. She's making too big a deal out of Z. She should be worrying about A. Instead, save your outrage for B. This message this dismissive trolling sense, we're not allowed to talk. We're not allowed to make critical observations about the language we use for food or see it as telling of our wider perceptions of the world and the people in it. So when I read that, it just made me think about the Black Forks and what you do. Have you ever had an experience like that? Like, where you've tried to speak out about, you know, why you started the Black Forks? Like, the fact that you didn't see, like, your own voice represented in the food media world and then faced that sort of criticism or opposition?
2: Um, Yeah, so I would say... um there were one or two incidents when I worked in PR and I would talk about the food and because I, I come from a Ghanaian background, my palate and my sensibilities are different than someone who's of a European background who's white. And I remember trying something, I didn't really like it. I'm like, I don't really like this, this person was like, Well, you don't really know food. <gasps> and it's like, no, I eat food. I enjoy food. I cook food very well. My opinion is valid. And at that uh, at that time, to be honest, I didn't say anything because I was in a professional setting mm-hmm. and I didn't want to rock the boat and kind of embarrass my bosses, so to speak. But I was very, very upset because I'm like, oh, why don't I know about food because you thought this was delicious and I didn't. I mean, food is very subjective. It's a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. Just because you thought it was delicious and I didn't think the same doesn't mean that you're right and I'm wrong or vice versa. It is what it is, you know? So I, I find that... Especially as a person of color, if you don't lean towards the Eurocentric view of food, like if you don't think French food is the best food in the world, if you don't identify with the Western European traditions, you don't know food. And it's like, okay, if I don't know Alain Ducasse, like, so what? Does Does that mean that I don't know food and you do? So I think that perception of you have to know this particular cuisine, this particular country of food to no food in general, I think is one of the most dumbest things I've heard. And what did that to say about the millions and billions of people that don't eat these foods, but no food too as well? And so, I mean, that experience kind of happened to me in different kind of permutations in different ways. And that, like, that was before you started the Black Forks? This is before I started the Black Forks. So... When I started it, my partner who works in hospitality, he's been working in hospitality for quite a few years, we were just talking about it, and we would say, hey, we'll go out to this restaurant, and this critic will say it's so good, and we would go, I'm like, this, this food needs seasoning. Like, this is bland as fuck. Like, I can't eat this, <laughs> you know? And everybody like, this is delicious. I'm like, no, like, salt and pepper on a piece of steak does not make this delicious, at least to me. And, I'm, and if you think it's delicious, that's great, but if I don't think so, that's also great. And then I think when... Even when we read about ethnic foods in the mainstream magazine, I remember either saying something about Ghanaian food uh, about this particular um, dish that we make is called shita. It's like a black pepper, it's a condiment, and they said that the orange from the oil that rises up up top from the shita is orange after you cook it down for a few hours, and they said the orange came from palm oil, and I got so upset because if you ate at a Ghanaian restaurant, you could just ask the person what it was because it wasn't made from palm oil. The reason why the oil is orange is because when you cook the tomatoes and onions down, when you pretty much caramelize them all the way down and take the water out, it turns the oil orange. So I got really upset because people who were white would talk about authority, about ethnic food, but you don't know what you're talking about. And everybody Mm -hmm. else is like, oh, great. This is wonderful. So... In my head, I was just thinking, well, why not ask to get the right information? Or better yet, why don't we have people who actually make these foods and eat these foods on a daily basis talk about them? And that's part of the reason why we started the Black Forces, because our perspective wasn't being represented. And when it was, it was such from a white, Eurocentric, oh, I'm better than you because I know this, that it it would just seem very, just very not genuine and just very haughty almost, you know, like I know everything and you don't. So Yeah, and
1: unfortunately it's all occurring in a vacuum because it's like yeah. there's someone who clearly didn't do their research and doesn't know about Ghanaian food writing about mm-hmm. it and then it's you know, probably a largely white audience reading that and yeah. digesting it and believing it at face value, because why not? Mm -hmm.
2: And then the cycle just continues. Yeah, and it happens not with just Ghanaian food. It happens with everybody else's food, you know? Mm -hmm. People make these gross assumptions about it and don't do their research and pass it off as fact. And so I I find that that happens a lot with food from brown and black folks, you know? And I feel like a part of it is we don't fight back. Now people are fighting back. But I felt like people just kind of like, "Eh, okay, it was a mistake. Too bad. So sad. Hmm. And it's like, no, you wouldn't like that somebody misrepresented your food. So do your research and try to find out something about somebody else's food.
1: Yeah. We're going to take a quick
2: break and right. then I
1: want to talk more about the Black Forks.
2: All right. Awesome.
0: Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes. Feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs. And try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Our show's about beer, cider, things behind it like
2: grains and malts and hop growers, and we'll talk to beer bar owners, brewers, kind of the whole world of, of what's going on in drinks. Tune in on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Support my show and all of the Heritage Radio Network programs. Go to org and click on the Beating Heart to donate.
1: You are listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm here in studio with my guest, Bonnie Williams, who is the co-founder of The Black Forks. Um, so we've been talking about her time when she lived in Ghana as as a child. Yes, as a youngin, And then assimilating back into the United States and uh, The Black Forks, which is a platform she created to... Well, why don't you say it in your words? I'm not going to repeat myself.
2: (laughs) Sure. So The Black Forks is a content platform that explores all cultures and food through the Black lens and also a space where multicultural contributors can share their stories surrounding food and their experiences with food. So The Black Forks is essentially a space where people can come and feel like they can be themselves and feel like they can see themselves reflected in our work and who we are and just with their experiences with the world in general. So you just gave a couple examples of
1: why you felt like there was a space to create the Black Forks. And since you've created it, um, and then since, I don't know, since since whenever, like since, since recently, it does seem like there is a little bit more effort, like at least from my New York centric point of view, people are trying a little bit harder to incorporate different voices in the food media space. And I think so much because of the election and you know everything that's happening, um, there are more conversations than they used to be in the food world, at least, that have to do with immigration and also race. And like this article that we just spoke about in Civil Eats. Do you see progress?
2: I mean, compared to my time working in PR, definitely. Mm -hmm. I would say I see progress a lot with the food people at the top. So I see major food editors asking people of all backgrounds, like, hey, contribute, pitch us a story. We want to hear from you where I feel maybe two, three years ago that wasn't necessarily the case because people felt that there was no space for that. People felt Well, I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to lose my audience. I don't want to be in the middle of an argument or a debate. So that's where I see the most change happenings from the top with the food editors. I feel that now I can name at least five food writers of color where when I was working in PR, I couldn't name anyone. And I'm sure those people were there, but they were just so hard to find. I feel like now people... Or you can find them more easily than you were able to before. And so in those ways, I do feel like the landscape is changing where as people of color, we have more visibility. And then people are also asking for our stories as well concerning food. I think it kind of happens also like from the top down and like starting with chefs.
1: Mm-hmm. Like as we see more diverse chefs gaining notoriety, like people like David Chang, who are, are just so visible and so outspoken, maybe that trickles down a little bit um, onto the editorial side as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like you yeah, have Chef JJ, what he's doing at Minton's, and he you know he's everywhere. So, I, I and I love it because when, when I first started getting into the food world two, three years ago, it was really hard to find chefs of color. Like you had the... David Chang, who is, of course, he's wildly popular, but as, outside of him and maybe one or two people here and there, you were kind of like, where 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 are all the chefs at? Like, people of color have been helming in the kitchens for years and years and decades and decades, yeah. and so it's really nice to see people of color, chefs of color, getting the shine that they deserve and getting the recognition that they deserve for making great food and making food as art and sharing it with the world.
1: Yeah. So, what kind of I mean, other than having this website um, and contributing stories, like how are you out there and what what is the Black Forks, what are the Black Forks doing to change this
2: landscape? So, wonderful question. So we have an event that we're working on in the next three weeks. Can't say too much about it yet because details are still being finalized, but it's going to be an event where we celebrate the Caribbean and not just the food, but the culture, the people, the landscape, the weather. So it's going to be a full immersion experience. So I'm really excited about that. So if you want more details, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, In terms of things other than the event, I think what we really want to do is network and go out and meet people who are in the food space. What I'm noticing is that when we go to a lot of events, you see a lot of the same faces. And I'm learning that the food world is very small. And I left PR for a bit because now I work in tech, so I'm not necessarily in that world 24-7. So for me, it's just connecting with other like-minded people who are doing the same things I'm doing or something pretty similar and say, hey, let's connect, let's collaborate. Let's see what other things we can create together. How is that going so far? Like, are, Do you feel like other outlets are are
1: receptive to you? Like, Are you making those connections? Are people interested in... in- forming those types of collaborations.
2: Um I would definitely say yes. Uh one person I mean a few people that stick out in mind that uh who have given us some invaluable advice or just like sat down with us like Chef JJ has been a uh, really great support. I mean we told him about our website even before we had our website. He's like, "Cool, I'm down." Um, I've met Helen Hollyman of Munchies, and she was totally on board, and she gave us some really great advice, some invaluable advice about the website and being true to our voice and sticking with it. So there have been a lot of people who we've met in the food world who have said, Hey, I like what you're doing. And have given us advice when they didn't need to Mm -hmm. so that's been really nice and that's been really really good to see because I mean we're a new website we just started a year ago sometimes I don't know what I'm doing I'm still learning as I go along so for somebody to say hey you can do this and you can do that and they're already in that space where I want to be I feel like that's a that's been an invaluable asset for me
1: yeah like what other kind of changes would you like to see happen
2: I, A, definitely see more Voices of color Um, I guess it sounds a little bit Maybe too optimistic But I would love if people just Just with the voices of dissent People actually just listen As Mm -hmm. opposed to being so defensive Or white-splaining Or just invalidating people's experiences. I think that's one thing that annoys me the most when people of color speak about their experiences with race and food, is that somebody comes and invalidates their experience. I mean, I guess people are just really defensive, but I'm I'm not
1: really sure what that comes from. Like, to that point that Bonnie Sui made, like, just because I care about A doesn't mean I don't care about B. Like, where does that defensiveness come from?
2: You know, that's a good question. (laughs) I don't know, because I... I feel like people take it personally. Mm -hmm. They really do. Yeah, and it's like, it's not about you. And even Mm -hmm. if it is, like, suck it up, you know? And I I never understood why you would tell somebody that their experience is not valid when you don't don't look like them, when you have not lived their life. When you don't have their experience. Exactly, when you have not been in their shoes. To me, that's the most ridiculous thing anybody can do. So I would love to see more incorporation of people of color in their stories by race and food, even if it makes us really uncomfortable because you know what, like in order for you to grow, you have to be really uncomfortable. You have to face some really hard, tough truths about yourself and be like, hey, maybe I'm not this kind of person that I thought I was. And mm-hmm. I think that part right there is what gets people really defensive. So that people kind of thinking more inwardly, you know, as humans, we don't, we don't want to think about what's wrong with ourselves. You know, we want to point the blame towards others. And I think that's where the core of a lot of this defensiveness comes from. Yeah. Um, are you looking for contributing writers? I am. We're always looking for writers. We have a small team of three writers so far. So our total team is about seven people. So yes, we're always looking for writers. So if you want to write to us, um, we are at uh Our writers come from a diverse background. One of my writers, she's Afro-Latina. She's from the Dominican Republic. One of my other writers, she's actually from Cabo Verde. So it's been really interesting talking to them and listening to their experiences about food and culture through a lens that's completely different, has my own, has a West African, has a Ghanaian. So, yeah, we're always looking for people to contribute their stories and just tell us how they feel about food and culture and how they experience it in their life. Yeah. And what about just dining
1: out with you, like creating those, you know, those Small communities where people can just go out to a restaurant. Like, how do how do people get involved with that? I'm sorry. In terms of the oh, just like how we talked about, like how you said, you know, it's intimidating sometimes to go to like a fine dining restaurant, and then maybe like if more people of color just come together and do it, like it feels like a mm-hmm. more accessible experience.
2: Yeah, and I and I think that a lot of times uh, it's interesting because I was having a conversation with my partner about this about how restaurant culture is self-segregated. So Mm. you go to a place like, I believe the name Sweet Chick in Williamsburg, and it's mostly people of color. Whereas Williamsburg is not a community of color, you know? So I, I think in terms of a person of color, I think just noting that everything is for you and that... You can go to a fine dining place and you can go to somewhere where you see predominantly people of color and be okay with that. I think for me personally, to be honest, sometimes I go to a place and I don't necessarily feel welcome there. I, you know you kind of get that vibe. It's kind of like, well, do you belong here? Can you afford to eat here?" Mm-hmm. And I think for me personally, I've had to come back that like no, I belong here as long as I'm patronizing you with my dollars that are green and that are universal, I'm gonna eat here and you're gonna treat me as such. And I think sometimes, as people of color, we just kind of avoid that because dining out is an enjoyable experience. You don't want to dine out and have a negative experience, so you go to places where you know you're going to be treated well. But I think in order for us to change that narrative, we have to go into those places and be like, listen, we're here, and we're going to spend our dollars, and you're going to treat us, you know, with respect and reverence as you would any other diner. So, yeah, so what what's the best, um, I guess, like you sort of just,
1: Touched it. Like, what's the best advice for someone who feels intimidated about going in the first place?
2: Just go. Just go. <laughs> just go. Yeah. Okay. Just, go. just it, go. It'll be really uncomfortable. Um. You. I mean, if you're like me, I'm sure you get stared mm-hmm. at. But I think just being visible. Mm-hmm. I think being visible is. It speaks a lot more. It speaks more volumes than you think. And I think once you do, it, and somebody else does, it, and somebody else does it, you know, then it. it Hopefully, eventually, it doesn't become so strange after all. Yeah. I think just, like I said, just being in that space where you initially felt like you didn't belong is, is a big thing. And it kind of reminds me, I don't know, like, you know, the civil rights era when people were going to Woolworths and they would stay there, and then one friend would come and every, everybody else would come, and eventually Woolworths had to desegregate because people were coming. And I feel like we kind of have to do the millennial version of that you know when it comes to fine dining and establishments where we initially don't feel as comfortable just go yeah just go cool thanks Bonnie you're welcome
1: thanks for being my guest today it was so great to talk to you and learn more about the Black Forks thanks everyone for listening to Heritage Radio Network don't forget to donate don't forget to sign up be a member at heritageradionetwork.org you're listening to Food Without Borders we'll be back next week Wednesday 5 p.m EST